Hello and welcome to Geoversive's Earth Intelligence. I'm Don Shelby. Joining me today is the founder of Geoversive, Joe Robertson. Joe's also Citizens Climate International Director and lead strategist for the Resilience Intel Climate Smart Finance Initiative. Our guest today is Dean Rachel Kite, the current and 14th Dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. She's the first woman to lead the nation's oldest graduate-only school of international affairs. Prior to Tufts, she was a special representative of the UN Secretary General and Chief Executive of C for All, short for Sustainable Energy for All. She was previously the World Bank Group Vice President and Special Envoy for Climate Change leading up to the Paris Agreement. She was appointed Companion of the Order of St. Michael and St. George by the throne of Great Britain. She's many goals and many ways to achieve those goals, one of which is bringing energy to the three billion people on Earth who have none, and to do so sustainably. Dean Kite, welcome to Earth Intelligence. Well, thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. First question, Dean Kite, do we have the time and the will to get to a sustainable, carbon-free, vigorous, and growing economy? Well, we're running out of time, and we desperately need concentrated political will. It's been said in the last year that politics is letting down our scientists. We know that we are pushing up against our planetary boundaries. We have a lot of the technology that we need that could be deployed today at scale. We don't have to sacrifice in that cleaner energy technologies are also going to be where good jobs and resilient communities come from. But we have inertia and incumbency to overcome, and that's going to require some pretty strong politics. Tell me what you mean by incumbency. Well, for generations now, carbon dioxide emissions was the lifeblood of our economy. Uh, Our energy systems were built on centralized fossil fuels. Uh, The cars and trucks, buses, planes, ships went around the world using internal combustion engines. Our farming system was about agricultural productivity, not necessarily the quality of the soils and their sustainability. We've been encroaching on nature for generations now. And so the incumbency is that the firms and the societies that have done well out of that way of organizing ourselves are still there. And the subsidies and the subsidy regimes and the way that we've thought about wealth and the way that we've thought about what progress means are still there. And so that has to be unpicked. And so there are lots of people who are still doing well enough uh, from the current system, not those who don't have access to clean energy, not those who can't keep their kids safe because they can't get access to uh, clean air, uh, not those who can't put a, a healthy plate of food in front of their children at an affordable level. We haven't been taking care of everybody, but there's enough people doing well enough that we have incumbents that need to take care of. In the work that you did with the World Bank and in Sustainable Energy for All, did you see an emerging mindset that looks differently at value creation in the energy space, in food and farming, that maybe we're moving towards a way of thinking that does value external returns on investment, social returns, natural capital? I think that there is very clear orthodoxy within economics or within, uh, certainly within the science, uh, within, within politics even, that, um, that would lead you to conclude that we needed to be doing certain things that we weren't doing. So we know that if you want to have less pollution, then you put a price on pollution and you make polluters pay. And that has worked very well uh, successively over generations. 
But when carbon dioxide emissions are harmful to the planet and harmful to humanity, we haven't been able to put an effective price on carbon. And we haven't been able to have that be a, a globally traded system. And so when I was at the World Bank, there was lots of technical evidence that we needed to have an effective price on carbon. There was lots of technical work available on exactly how you could do that. You could do that by taxes and fees. You could do that by market mechanisms and trading. We'd seen lots of small pilots and different examples across the world. But politically, this would have to be a priority. And so some of the work that we did was, how do you generate political leadership around, we need to have an effective price on carbon if we want to have less of it in the lifeblood of our economy. So there was lots of technical evidence uh, about how you would put a price on carbon, whether it's a tax or a fee, or whether it would be a market-based mechanism, whether you'd have an exchange trading system. And of course, we've done that for other pollutants over the years. But this was about urgency. And it, we, we did a lot of work to to raise this up the political agenda and say, if we need to have less carbon dioxide emissions in our economy, then we need to put a price on it. This is political. You can design uh, effective carbon pricing so that ordinary families are not out of pocket. Ordinary small businesses are not out of pocket. You can subsidize uh, access to clean energy. You don't need to penalize the poor because you're putting a carbon tax in place. But have we had the, the kind of urgency and public policy discourse about this? No. People seem to be spooked 20 to 30 years ago with mention of the gas tax, but you know, we are now absolutely in a point which we discussed at the beginning of the discussion that we, we don't have time. And so effectively pricing that which we don't want to have in the economy, easing our way through deep decarbonisation, weaning ourselves off carbon means putting effective prices in place. And that's going to be a political decision. That That is not a technical solution. The technical solutions to that are fairly clear. It's uh, you know, can we resist uh, the money in politics and resist the incumbency, resist the inertia uh, and uh, and put that price on? It's not the only thing we need to do. But I've always said that effective carbon pricing is the necessary, if insufficient, policy measure that we need to take. I want to go back for a minute to uh, 2015. That's also the year when the Paris Agreement was achieved. Your work at the World Bank, you had a role in leading the the pulling together of the Carbon Pricing Leadership Coalition. You had a role in shaping the World Bank's climate agenda, and you were recognized for the work you did to help bring world leaders to the table to essentially create the conditions for the Paris Agreement. How would you describe what went well in that process so that it was possible to achieve buy-in and political will? I think there was one very important thing that made it possible to reach a, a global uh, agreement at the political level, which was this extraordinary movement amongst civil society, which you would expect, but also amongst businesses that said, we know that we need to do this and we will be able to do this. We need you to agree and create the framework for this. So you had insurance companies and car companies and uh, energy companies saying, you know, if there is a, an international agreement on this, we will make it work. And so what they were doing was saying to political leaders, don't be afraid of reaching an ambitious agreement. We will then work with you to make this happen. So it wasn't the case of sort of 
the private sector saying, well, oh, there's you know there's a bogeyman in the cupboard, and if you agree the Paris Agreement, then you know uh, death and destruction will come to you domestically. There was this extraordinary upswell of financial leaders, business leaders in every sector of the economy saying, we can do this, we need this, we need a direction of travel to be agreed by government. And I think that's important because here we find ourselves in 2021 with a new US administration uh, saying, okay, we we commit to being zero net uh, carbon in 2050. We have an EU that's made that commitment. We have China that's made that commitment for 2060. So you have the G3, the three big economic blocks saying that by mid-century, we should be able to balance the economy with the chemistry of the planet. And so in that moment, you know, having the private sector say, okay, we will figure this out. We need R&D and we need research and development spend by the public sector where there are things that we still need to develop. But, you know, if you set a clear direction of travel, if you set a sensible regulatory framework, we will get there. And of course, they, in many cases now, the private sector is out ahead of government, right? You've got car companies saying that we will no longer be building internal combustion engine vehicles by mid-2020s, late-2020s. Even truck companies now, Volvo, Daimler, in the last few days, you know, we're not going to be building trucks with internal combustion engines for much longer. So they're even ahead of where the regulation is. So I think there's this, this sort of back and forth between what the science is saying, what the private sector is saying, and what government needs to do. Government's role is to make sure nobody gets left behind in this transition. Government's role is to protect the most vulnerable, the, the, the sort of the, pierce, the piercing edge of the vanguard of decarbonisation. That's where the private sector already is. But we need to make sure that we don't leave anybody behind. Dean Kai, do you think the financial sector and corporations are waking up to the idea of risk management and decarbonization, that sustainability is their only path to the future? Well, this this has moved very fast because in the in the run up to Paris, for the first time, a, a set of analysts started talking about this concept of a carbon bubble and started talking about this concept of stranded assets. And what they were referring to is that if we need to go through a process of decarbonization in order to mitigate uh, climate pollution and, and, and everything that is spurring climate change, then you do not want to be holding a, a carbon asset. You don't want to be in a heavily carbon-intensive industry. You don't want to have products and services which are heavily uh, carbonized or, or, or you know deeply carbon intensive because the value of those assets is going to disappear if the one thing we want less of in the economy is going to be carbon. That was a concept that really was only floated for the first time in the run-up to Paris. Central bank governors, ministers of finance started looking at this, started examining and analyzing it. And so now we are at a point where we've got hundreds of trillions of dollars of Assets under ownership in uh, sovereign funds, institutional investors, pension funds, asset managers from BlackRock to Vanguard State Street to other smaller boutique uh, environment social governed funds, uh, sort of edging their way away from carbon intensity, divesting themselves of 
firms that are heavily invested in carbon that don't have a plan for how to get themselves away from carbon, how to become more energy efficient, how to work down the energy intensity of their operations, how to actually open up new business lines and move away from carbon intensity. And so this has gone from being an idea to being something that central bank governors and ministers of finance have grappled with to now actually being something that's going to be regulated and something that the financial sector is starting to lead on. And what's been very interesting through this pandemic is that the, there's been a growing interest in moving into what is called environment, social and governance. So into sustainable assets. Uh, the appetite for that has simply increased through this pandemic. It has not slowed down. So you've talked about business leadership and innovation helping to make ambition possible, helping to make political will uh, come together. And you also mentioned balancing the economy with the chemistry of the planet. All of that is very much, I think, what is happening and a brilliant description of it. But it raises the question, do the people who are doing the work of diplomacy have to train in a multidisciplinary way? Can they essentially represent the national interest coming from a very specialized political background or a very specialized technical background? Or do they have to have some sense of this complexity? I think they have to have a sense of the complexity and they must not be afraid of the complexity. They have to have courage to face the complexity. And I don't think that diplomats today need to be expert in all of the science because, frankly, if you're representing a country today or engaged in a multilateral forum today, then it isn't just sort of climate science, it's also data science and frontiers of technology related to artificial intelligence. I mean, this is shaping all kinds of uh, things from trade to security to, to everything else. So what the diplomats of today need to do is be comfortable in complexity and, and very, very good at calling in science and scientists and data experts and subject matter experts and asking them the right questions and then synthesizing the, the specific and technical input that they get and forming a position. So you have to be very good at framing questions and very good at listening and understanding what the science is saying. And if you look at the response to the pandemic, it's very interesting to look at how different countries involve science in decision-making. There are very many different models and the models might be very robust, but then if politicians aren't capable of asking the right question and aren't capable of listening to the answer, then bad things can happen. And so I think there is a very profound need for this next generation of diplomats to really hone these soft skills as well as hard skills of diplomacy. What do you see as the big questions or the transformational challenges facing the next generation of diplomats? So that's a great question. So I, I think that we are at a inflection point of transformation. We are, we are moving into a world that has to grapple with deep inequality and the corrosive impact of that inequality on economic development uh, within countries and between countries. We are in a necessary sprint over the next 30 years into decarbonisation. And we don't know every dimension of that, but we know that we are on that journey. And we still face the possibility of discontinuous change and tipping points as we have worn down the carrying capacity of the planet already to, to such an extent. We face existential threats in terms of 
bioweaponry and cyberterrorism and the new ways in which technology can harm us. We continue to face an existential threat in nuclear proliferation. And we face existential or at least existential for certain species threats from pandemic, zoonotic pandemic diseases, because this won't be the last one. Where we are is at a world where we've got crises in plain sight, systems that have tended to sort of close their eyes or take these crises and put them on a shelf somewhere and, and, and hope that they don't come back to bite us. And we've learned that that doesn't work. And so we're also at a point where the institutions internationally that we've used to help us as a community of nations come together and work through these problems, these entities are not really fit for purpose. They have been demeaned by the open hostility of populists and nationalists, especially in the last few years. And they have suffered from the benign neglect of their friends. Uh, the United States has not paid its bills at the United Nations for years, long before President Trump was elected. And so what is the United Nations that we need at this point in our history? What is the world trade trading regime and the World Trade Organization we need at this point? Who should the Bretton Woods institutions be at this point in, in our journey? And remember that most of these institutions were created more than 75 years ago at a time when most of the nations of the international community were not free. They were still ruled by colonial powers. And so a lot of the voting rights and a lot of the structures were designed for the victors of Second World War and for a world where there were still colonial powers. I'm not saying that we're going to have to go back to the drawing board and start afresh, but I think asking ourselves, what are the structures and the values of, of how we come together internationally? I think that's a very profound question, and it's a profound question for right now. Is it fair to say that, that, that success depends on being able to include people constructively who have not been included before? When you have different perspectives in the room, in a team, that team will make different, if not better, risk-based decisions, right? So whether that's the boardroom of a company or a boardroom of a financial institution or whether it's a cabinet in a parliamentary democracy, you know, having different perspectives around the table is a good thing. I think it has deep implications for gender politics, for issues of race and class and ethnicity and inclusion in many countries uh, of the world. And then I think that's then a real issue for the diplomatic core of countries around the world, and, and certainly for the State Department of the United States, but also for the uh, Foreign Service in the UK and elsewhere. And recently, I was looking at data about the um, external service of the European Union. Um, you know, we still tend to draw our diplomats from a certain section of society, a certain perspective. And I think that that um, is going to have to continue to change and perhaps change a bit more quickly than has been the case in the past. Dean, nature has been a bugaboo for corporations for a long time, set at odds oftentimes, uh, sometimes politically. What's good for nature is bad for corporations, bad for GDP. But that's not necessarily the case as we look through the microscope and use science to guide us. It seems to me that in the words that we just heard in our last podcast by Gaylord Nelson, who started Earth Day, mm. that business is a wholly owned subsidiary of nature. Is there a reason to rethink 
how we think about nature. There are very deep-seated cultural, religious, societal reasons why we've got it wrong. We, we do tend to set ourselves apart from other species, whether fauna or flora. We, we, in, in, our, in our Western tradition, we have a paternalistic attitude to nature. We take into the nth degree we have used it and abused it, and we are paying the, the, the significant price for that now. So the question is, how do we value it differently? And of course, the point, the policy point at which we arrive quite easily is that um, in the value of a tree standing as opposed to a tree cut and lying on the ground, that, that it has to be uh, of greater value if it is standing and is acting to sequester carbon and is producing a home for other species, is you know, improving the quality of the soil, etc. That is difficult to capture at the moment in the measure that we use for global economic progress, which is GDP, gross domestic product. So this was a concept invented uh, 80, more than 80 years ago, it, at the time, we were warned to never use it uh, as a measure of wealth, as a measure of progress, but uh, uh, we, we, we ignored that. And so GDP is not good at measuring the value of nature and the value uh, of everything that nature provides. It, it doesn't allow us to internalize our externalities, to use economic speak. It's also very bad at putting a value on healthcare and social care and uh, taking care of our elders and our children and education. And so we have at the very heart of our economic scorecard a device which is a blunt instrument for all of those things which we need to value better. This should not be impossible to do. We should be running different accounts alongside GDP until everybody gets comfortable. But at some point, we are going to have to have a different measure of success. And of course, some small countries, some medium-sized economies are already doing that. New Zealand, uh, Costa Rica, Finland, elsewhere are experimenting with different forms of accounting. And the, again, the, the technology of this is well known. Uh, we need the political will now to start introducing this. The COVID pandemic has revealed vulnerabilities in big global supply chains, big systems. But it has also revealed that far more people are vulnerable than we normally think. Even in the United States, we've seen uh, food insecurity skyrocket. Do we have to find a way to say that the success of human beings on the margins of society is worth a lot more than we have conventionally thought? So COVID-19 should have taught us or it is there for us if we want to see it. This fundamental lesson that sometimes in order to protect yourself and those closest to you, you have to protect your neighbor, your friend, the next community over, the next country over, because you can't self-isolate from a pandemic. You can't self-isolate from sea level rise and from extreme weather events as a result of climate change. Do we have it in us to understand that only when everybody is vaccinated will we be safe, not when the 1% of my church community or my uh, town is vaccinated or my town's vaccinated but not the next town. No, when everybody is vaccinated, then we will be able to walk freely without a mask, right? Only when we've solved for the problems of the food insecurity of the breadbaskets of 
Sudan and Malawi uh, and Africa? Will will Africans be able to live on their own land and 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 not be the migrants which we feel imperil us in Europe or North America? Right? Only when we can build resilience and build uh, capacity into Honduras, so that every time it is hit by an extreme weather event. People don't need to move then up through Guatemala and then through Mexico and then arrive on the southern border. Right. Only when we take care of everybody, then can we take care of ourselves. Now, this is a profound lesson. It is a lesson that cuts against a lot of the sort of short termism and then the me, myself, I, which is uh, a feature of our modern uh, society. It is not necessarily a message which polls well, but the lesson is there if we want to study it. Thank you very much, Dean Kite, for being with us today. Well, thank you. It's been a lovely conversation. And I hope you stay tuned to Geoversy of Earth Intelligence podcast. And if you have something to say, you can reach us on earthintel.org and leave a comment for us. And you can push it out on your social media if you find this a worthy conversation. Thank you much, everyone, for joining us. We'll see you next week.